This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Thorn Podcast. This week, we're proud to have Dr. Nathan Price on the show again for a second time. Dr. Price is the Chief Scientific Officer at Thorn Health Tech and the co-director of the Hood Price Lab for Systems Biomedicine. And I'd actually hear, like to hear a little bit about what that is. It's great to have you back, Nathan. Maybe you could tell us what that, what's the Hood Price Lab? What do you, what do you do? Yeah, the, the Hood Price Lab is, is a lab that exists within the Institute for Systems Biology in Seattle. Uh, it's where I was full-time uh, before taking uh, the job, first at Longevity and then uh, following the merger at Thorne Health Tech. And so the, yeah, the Hood Price Lab came about uh, four or five, well, maybe five years ago or something like that. Maybe it's a little more than that now. I had a long time, first as a mentor, and then a long time partnership with Lee Hood. Lee for those who might not know, is, is one of the best-known uh, biologists in, in the world. He's a celebrity. <laughs> he's, he's a celebrity in the science field, for sure. Uh, and more than a celebrity, he's someone who has achieved an incredible amount in his career. Uh, he was one of the pioneers in molecular immunology, uh, won the Lasker Prize for that, uh, shared with Tonegawa early on, and there was some... Uh, interesting backstory because then the Nobel Prize went to Tonegawa and not Lee for some reason. And, you know, there's kinds of politic questions about all those kind of things. But uh, anyway, interesting backstory. Uh, Lee went on to become the father of this uh, field of systems biology and uh, considered one of the fathers of personalized medicine. Big claim to fame is uh, inventing automated DNA sequencing, which made the Human Genome Project possible. And he won the National Medal of Science from President Obama in 2016, I think it was. And so, um, so Lee came to me, uh, we'd been doing some work together. We had co-founded a company together called Aravale, and we had just been working closely and, and he had become the chief science officer for Providence, uh, St. Joseph Health at that time. And he came to me with kind of an interesting proposition and I was uh, a little surprised by it, but he, he came and said, you know, I'd really like to merge our lab groups together into one group. He says, we're doing all these things together. You know, the computation and I, know the biology, obviously, and, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he thought that, you know, with him taking on that role and, you know, and at that stage of his career that, that this would be a great next step. And I ultimately, you know, and thankfully um, ended up saying yes to that. And we formed uh, this integrated lab. It was about, I think, you know, 30 to 40 people you know, kind of going up and down over time, uh, biologists, computer scientists, physicists, uh, project managers, software engineers, et cetera, and really working on two big areas. One, which is systems medicine. So how do you take complexities of disease and translate that into something you can do about, about the perturbed networks that are underlying that disease? And, and then on the opposite side, uh, we both had become really fascinated by the, the area we call 
scientific wellness, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. what can you do before disease initiates, um, often called precision health these days. And so that was this uh, wonderful enterprise. And so now I, you know, more, you know, moonlight at the lab and, and do, you know, spend a little bit of time there uh, now that my full-time job is with Thorne Health Tech, uh, but it's a very special place and we continue to move forward on a number of different fronts. And, you know, Lee being who he is, is working hard on launching a million person project to analyze scientific wellness and we'll be involved in that as well. And so it's, uh, it's all uh, very exciting. Well, I know all of that uh, involves huge amounts of data. And that's part of what I want to talk about today is how you manage these massive amounts of data. So let's jump into our discussion uh, which is going to be on artificial intelligence. And a lot of times people hear that AI, you know, and they think about R2-D2 and C-3PO and, you know, androids and the singularity and winter <laughs> machines going to be our, our friends. But really, there's a, there's a much bigger story to artificial intelligence than that. And then the other term that you hear around that is something called machine learning. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering what, what does AI really mean when we're talking about healthcare and how are you guys using it at Thorne Health Tech? Yeah. So let's, let's dive into this and I'm the big topic, <laughs> the big, the big topic. Yeah. And I think in terms of how we might go about this is I, I think we want to have a broad conversation around, you know, the kinds of computational models that really pull all of this together in terms of being able to de- to deliver the best um, information that we can to people. Uh, and artificial intelligence, I think is a really, it's a really provocative term. It's a really interesting term. It is a term that I always feel like is a bit overused, <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah. Kind of what everyone wants to talk about. So when we talk about artificial intelligence though, what we're really talking about, and the way I like to talk about it in Thorn Health Tech is health intelligence, but it's really, how do you take AI and apply it to health? So the reason for it is pretty clear. As you start getting into things like genomics, mm-hmm. there's no way that a scientist or a physician, even as one with the expertise that you've got, could ever remember how or be able to interpret all 3 billion base pairs that exist in a person. And of course, they're different person to person. And so as we think about that, we're essentially forced to put together systems that can capture intelligence, how we think about data, how we apply it, and we have to automate that. And so that has to be done. And that's what we really mean by artificial intelligence within this context. You know, and I want to separate that term from what we're talking about here from the kind of things that we think about in sci-fi, mm-hmm. uh, because we're not, nothing we're doing is remotely sentient or anywhere yeah. close or yeah. anything like that. But it is a set, you know, but it is a representation of intelligence that we can apply to data to go to a conclusion. That's a big element of it. And then machine learning, which you brought up, machine learning is primarily about uh, identification of patterns. Mm -hmm. And so there, typically in machine learning, you can do supervised or unsupervised, but typically what you're looking at, especially if it's supervised learning, is I have some outcome that I care about. 
I then want to associate that with a pattern that I can see in accessible data, whether that's a bunch of measures out of your blood or wherever you're pulling them from. And so machine learning is the way that we go about analyzing these huge data sets to identify patterns that are predictive of some health outcome that we care about. And we can get into a whole bunch of examples like that, as I'm sure we will as we go forward, but that's kind of the, the big picture of it. Well, I know we talked in the previous podcast about calorie restrictions and how calorie restriction is known to be beneficial for prolonging health span. And so I'm wondering if that might be an example of how we can use AI to figure out what's going on in the body. Because I've, I've seen presentations on CR that said, boy, if we look at the genes that are turned on and off in the body, there's a lot of things happening there. It's not just like you're, you're eating less and one pathway changes in the body. All kinds of genes are activated and all kinds of genes are turned off. And how would you ever be able to interpret that, you know, with the small brains that, that we humans have? Exactly. And that's where machine learning really shines because you can go in and identify all of these different patterns. And I'll, I can give you an example from uh, some of our work, uh, in this case, out of the, the Hood Price Lab. And so one of the things that we looked at from data across thousands of different individuals, and we had microbiomes and proteomes and metabolomes and clinical labs and um, wearable device, anyway, a whole host of data. And we started to look at you know, some of the things that change with age. And one of the things we found, which was quite interesting, uh, and we published this in Nature and Metabolism uh, last year, is that a person's microbiome becomes more unique to them over time, if you stay healthy, if you age healthily, in other words, you don't get hospitalized, don't get, you know, you don't get on a bunch of drugs. If you stay healthy, starting about 40 or 50, it ticks up. And by uniqueness, what I mean is that your microbiome looks less like anybody else's microbiome. Mm -hmm. And that kind of goes up over time. And so you can analyze these kind of things in the big data. It's not something we knew. It's something we machine learn. It just comes out of the data. And then you can ask questions like, well, what kind of metabolites do we see in the blood that come from the microbiome? Mm -hmm. Are there commonalities that are found as you go through that process? And it turned out that even as people's microbiomes were diverging and becoming less similar, there were unified metabolic processes that were getting turned on that were associated with those who had stayed healthy versus not. In fact, they were so strong that we could predict, you know, it had predictive power for in an elderly cohort of who would live for the next four years versus not. And so wow. you could actually see those kind of things. So I, you know, I'm not trying to go down that rabbit hole right now, but just that's an example of, all right, we have a lot of data. We set it up looking at different cohorts that we know something interesting is going to happen with something important. And then you just let the data tell you what is associated. Then the whole issue and what really comes out is then sorting out what is correlative from what is causal. And that's where the real, you know, challenge and there's, there's the rub. I, I have to say that I've worked my way through college in a micro in a micro lab plating uh, cultures and using different media and growing, you know, a handful of different bacteria. <laughs> and that's what we knew about the gut microbiome back then is if somebody had a problem, if they had diarrhea or, or inflammation of some sort, we'd try to find out if there were parasites or bugs. Again, it was a handful of things that we looked for. And if they weren't there, we'd say, well, you don't have salmonella. You don't have shigella. Uh, I don't know what it is. Hopefully it'll get better. And now 
you know, we do this DNA sequencing of microbes and we don't even call them microbes. We call them operational taxonomic units, <laughs> yeah, right? Because right. it's like, well, those aren't really, you know, particular bacteria. They're just strands of DNA. And what I'm saying is that we, without artificial intelligence, I don't know how we'd be able to make sense of that data because there's so much information that comes out when you do a, a fecal sample. Exactly. And that's really true because the the amount of information just becomes overwhelming. Overwhelming. And so it is a challenge for all of us in this field of how you take all that information and you separate signal from noise, which is really the name of the game. And it's interesting because you know our brains, we have to do that all the time, right? We ignore the vast amount of signal that's around us. You know, just think of something super mundane, like in the, in the old days, people used to drive from work to home or something like that, you know? So if people could remember that, you know, let's say you have to do something like that, you know, and you're driving home and we find, we find that to be a pretty simple task most of the time, but the amount of total information around is massive. Like where is every molecule of air going? Where, you know, where is the, you know, how is every blade of grass moving? How is, you know, you get, you get the point. There's an incredible, massive amount of information around us all the time. And yet we navigate perfectly well because we understand what matters and the information reduction that we do is massive, right? We understand that all that really matters, right? The road is clear and like no person is crossing or that we, there's a light that's right. Like we recognize those signals. And so what we're trying to build in biology is in areas where we lack intuition, trying to figure out, okay, how do I take this massive amount of data and understand the 99.99% of it that I don't actually need? How do I chunk it into the stuff that I actually do need? And that's what all these uh, efforts are really about is figuring out you know, what is it that matters and how do I chunk information so that when I see this huge mass of changes in molecules, that I actually understand what is happening in a way that I can be intelligent about how I interface in that. And you need AI as, as, as an interface uh, between that massive amount of data and, and something you can intuit and think about. So, uh, so that brings us to one potential clinical application that I know Thorn uh, is, is involved in, and that's digital twins. Um, and I'm wondering if you, can we talk about that? Is that a, is that a secret or is that yeah, um, we can, we can talk something about that, that we something, can touch on? Yeah, I can at least, I can at least touch on it. Um, something I'm really excited about um, you know, maybe I can't get into all the details on it. Well, maybe just define it and, and like how it might be useful. So this is one of the areas that I'm most excited about. And there have been the rise of, of digital twins recently you know, to prominence. And what a digital twin means is it is a representation of your body, your physiology in a computer. We've partnered with a company called Embody Bio. Uh, it's led by Tom Patterson, uh, who's the CEO there, and someone that I've known and highly respected for uh, probably over a decade now. And we got together in detail a couple of years ago, and then we've entered into an uh, exclusive partnership with Thorn and Embody Bio for, um, uh, for brain health in the wellness space. And so what we've focused on there is to build a dynamic model that simulates 
how does your brain maintain health? And so this is really a scientific, what I like to call a scientific wellness point of view on, on attacking a disease, which is you don't start with all the things that you know about the disease. You start with building a model of what the brain has to do to stay alive. And so what we've done there uh, with, uh, with Embody is to model those processes. And then what you can do is you can then take measurements from a person and you can contextualize what does it mean when you have different types of genetics, kind of blood measures, different kinds of exercise behaviors, different kinds of, you know, on and on and on. And we've simulated 10 and a half million digital twins of what happens under all these different conditions. And we've compared it against a mountain of data related to uh, things like Alzheimer's disease. And you can recapitulate the fraction of people who get Alzheimer's disease at every age for every genotype, for example, for APOE. And you can get that really quite accurately. You can simulate the known effects of statins and certain statins that are beneficial and those that are probably not beneficial. For a particular individual. For a particular individual. We get the, so you get a distribution, you get a, a readout and which kind of people you know, based on measurements would be likely to benefit or not. And we can go through that and we've, we've compared it now against uh, just a mountain of data, all, you know, basically all the published clinical trials. It, you know, quantitatively looks at the data that comes out of positive trials, like the finger study. It recapitulates why things like base one inhibitors were, were harmful to patients and why that is. And essentially, you know, without getting too much into it, but what it really shows is um, one, and this is, you know, this is a big topic in the, in the field, but if you ask people like what causes Alzheimer's disease, the answer, you know, that they're caused by these amyloid plaques. Buildup of amyloid causes inflammation, end of story. Yeah, and we think- Get rid of the amyloid and you're fine. Right. Except it doesn't work. Except it doesn't work. We think that is absolutely wrong. So the elements there, is because we have done 400 clinical trials targeting amyloid. And in fact, even you know, the drug that was approved last year, right? why was it approved? Well, it clears amyloid, but doesn't help cognition. So at its core, we're really convinced that Alzheimer's is primarily a metabolic disease. What I mean by that is if you just think about some very basic facts, so your brain, 20% of the energy in your body, and it's about 2% of your body mass. So it is an energy hog sitting up here on, on the top of, your, top of your body here. And if you don't have enough energy, then, and you go into negative energy balance, then certain of your neurons will die. They basically get fried. Yeah, they can't, they can't sustain. So one of the things that happens as you get older is your ability to perfuse oxygen in your brain goes down. So you get, you get worse. And as you lose that ability to have oxygen, it becomes harder for you to generate as much energy in your brain as you used to. And there are certain areas in your brain which are less perfused, where it's harder to get at. And there's a really fascinating study that came out even just last year that had PET scans of this. So in these regions, you go into what, you know, hypometabolism, basically you go into negative energy balance, you're not able to, to create enough and those neurons die. So when that happens, then the total amount of synapse firing you have in your brain goes down. And when that happens, your brain has to do something to recover in order to keep your cognition going. 
So what it actually has to do is you need your background firing. There's always a threshold and you need that background firing to go. And so when you're doing that, you need to secrete a molecule then that will have an impact on increasing that background noise such that you can keep firing. Because this is all based on something called Hebbian learning, which is what fires together, wires together. It's how the brain basically learns. And what is that substance that the brain secretes to increase that background noise so that the total synapse firing goes up? It's called beta amyloid. Beta amyloid, yeah. Beta amyloid does that. So, so it's not the cause, it's the effect. It is the compensatory mechanism. It's the comp So you are literally attacking the compensatory mechanism. So it's a great biomarker. It is a biomarker of a problem, but it is a lousy lousy target. It's not the thing we, we need to go after. Not the thing. Now, it does get complicated because this increased synapse firing comes with an energy cost. And that energy cost, in fact, does have, you know, it, it, it pushes more pressure on because you are exuding energy. So there is an indirect effect back, which I think is why it's been so hard to sort out. Uh, but anyway, we've built this model. It uses data from 800 different papers, including 40% of them that aren't even Alzheimer's papers, but they're just on how the brain is wired. So we can now simulate all of this and we can look at the impact of different style of intervention and we can predict it based on mechanistic models of what it's likely to do. You know, and one of the big things from a product perspective is that it in fact predicts that some that uh, a compound becomes rate limiting as you're going through these, well, I guess I didn't get into this, as you're trying to keep this energy up, the other big fact is that these cholesterol recycle pathways become really important. That's where APOE comes in and is really crucial. And in fact, we can simulate the rate differences in cholesterol trafficking from APOE 4, 3, and 2. And just putting that plus oxygen perfusion loss as you get older, just those two facts will recapitulate for you the Kaplan-Meier curves on when people get Alzheimer's at what, at what rate uh, for all those the different APOE genotypes. And you can you can just predict that. The other element about this kind of approach is it tells you immediately why exercise is pretty as long as you're thinking about amyloid, it's not a direct line. It's like, okay, well, all right, what does exercise do to amyloid? Exercise just keeps your oxygen perfusion good, which keeps you in positive energy balance and you don't anyway, we could go down this rabbit hole a lot. And we've done this for two years. So we have a massive amount of information about this now. Uh, and it integrates just data across many, many studies from lots of great researchers out there in the Alzheimer's space. Uh, but that's the kind of thing you can do. You can build digital twins. You can build these complex models of what's happening in the maintaining wellness. And then you can use that to then go in. So there are a whole bunch of things we could get into like that, but it's just, there's a huge power in using computational models to go from you know, thinking about lots of individual papers to a unified model that has to explain all of the data at the same time. And that's hard to do. And we couldn't do it without computers. I mean, that's the whole artificial thing is we, there's just so much data. We couldn't come up with these conclusions, you know, without a little help from our mechanical friends. So this has got potential to affect all branches of medicine right? Neurology, you know, gastroenterology, immunology. There's just so many things we can do with this. Absolutely. You can build these out around all those areas, every known mechanism of aging, et cetera, et cetera. That's where we really go. 
All right, we need to take a break. Uh, we'll come back uh, and answer some questions from our listeners afterwards. Are you ready to take the guesswork out of good health? If you are, then Thorne makes it easy with simple health tests that offer deep insights into what's going on inside your body. Choose from multiple tests that analyze for sleep, stress, weight management, biological age, the gut microbiome, and more. Thorne's at-home health tests measure your personal biomarkers, providing detailed insights that help you identify potential health risks and specific areas of improvement. Plus, each one provides individualized recommendations for diet, exercise, and supplementation. Visit thorn.com to learn more about Thorne's Health Test and to start your new health discoveries today. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com. And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions from the community. We always appreciate you sending these questions in. Our first question this week comes from a listener who asks, how far away are we from AI replacing physicians? Do I need to worry that all this is going to put me out of a job, Nathan? Yeah, I think we're a long, we're a long way uh, from that. You know, AI is not going to replace physicians, but physicians who use AI will replace physicians who don't. And I think that's really a good way to put it because it is an essential tool. And there are certain areas where AI will become you know, really important quickly. Things like interpreting imaging data, you know, in certain mm -hmm. cases, AI can- Yeah, mammograms. Well. Yeah, because you can just train it on a lot of information. It gets good at it. It's good at classifying. So AI is really good at certain tasks, but- one of the things that I think is really important for people to understand, and it does come back to what I alluded to at the beginning, which is that I think AI is often an overused term and misinterpreted, because the kinds of things that computers are incredibly good at are not the same kind of things that humans are really good at. So you can take a human child, you show them a cat and a dog, they see five of them and they can tell the difference between cats and dogs forever. When we try to do that with deep learning, you know, it took 180 level deep perceptron and 50 million examples for a computer to actually get good. In fact, for a decade, we couldn't get a computer that was any good at telling the difference between a dog and a cat. And so, you know, it's just, just wired differently. And yet, if you want to multiply numbers that are massive or analyze huge data sets, we can't even possibly do it. So then the likely evolution of this, at least in the shorter term, for sure, is the notion of humans being augmented in their abilities by partnering with AIs that are good at the kind of things we're not good at. Yeah. I mean, we're already using our cell phones all day or, you know, our laptops is aug it's augmented reality. Uh, I've got a pretty good sized medical library in my office that I almost never use. Right. There's you have an one phones. in your phone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, I got one right on my phone that, you know, where I can look things up. Yeah. That's, this is already happening. So how, uh, what ways are, are Thorn, is Thorn looking at expanding into AI? Where, what's the future for Thorn? Yeah, so there's a number of different ways that we're going at this. One is we are working on expanding the range of testing that we're doing. So we'll be able in a cost-effective way to make a lot larger numbers of measurements. 
And the idea behind the AI is then to be able to deliver really personalized insights to the individual based on these kind of molecular profiles, all done under, you know, HIPAA and all done in, you know, ways that are private for the individual, but we'll give a lot more insight. Uh, another is that we're building these deep knowledge graphs that represent what we know from the literature, from uh, intervention studies and so forth about what the various products in the thorn line will do and then how they affect systems in the body, which will be deeply informed by these denser measurements that we uh, will be making as well. And so as you get into that, then what we'll be doing is building out further our learning system so that we can identify when someone has an issue, when they take the products, when they retest, and then we have a learning system that then finds out, okay, did what we recommend do for the person what they were hoping it would? And when it does, we, look, we see that and we record it. And if it doesn't, then we learn from that so that we're better the next time, right? That doesn't work on this individual's digital twin like it did on the others, why? And we'll get better and better at figuring out those kind of things. We're also very interested in connecting in with physicians who are you know, driving forward in their practices and utilizing uh, some of the products and solutions that we have so that we can deliver what we call health intelligence as a service. Uh, but basically what this is, is making available to physicians or other companies uh, where appropriate, where we can actually give access to what we understand about what drives wellness in these AI representations that we're building from what is known in the scientific literature. Uh, and then we'll augment that also with this hybrid of not only what we're pulling out of the literature, but also what we're doing in the machine learning so that we're fusing together both you know, what you might think of as knowledge-based AI and data-based AI, bringing those together so that we can give as deep insights as possible. And that's, that's really essential to, the, to where we got to go in the future. I know on a previous podcast, I, I talked with uh, Dr. Mary Kay Ross, from, also from Thorne, about the, our brain health program. And you know, it seems like AI is kind of a perfect fit for that because someone say complains of brain fog or forgetfulness, you know, they're not diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or dementia, but something isn't quite right. We need better tools for assessing where their brain is. And we need better tools for, for determining whether something we're giving them, like phosphatidylcholine you mentioned, is having an impact. I know in clinical practice, if I say, okay, you're forgetful, take this supplement, and then they come back in two months, How's it working? Well, I think it's helping. It'd be nice to have, you know, more specific metrics that we could use so that I could say, see, this is how you've changed in your assessment of, you know, here's how your brain is functioning differently. Here's the metabolic markers we've looked at that have shown improvements. And that's exactly right. In fact, the brain health is where we're really driving a lot of this in its you know, first iteration, or at least the next, or I should say the next round, the next upgrade iteration. And that's exactly right, because we can fold together modules that represent how do you take a set of measurements to make precise recommendations, working hard now to fuse that in with what we've learned from these digital twin models so that we can actually represent uh, for an individual, right, if we know a little bit about genetics and blood work and so forth, 
uh, how to say, well, and we're and also cognitive testing that we're looking at, that that would enable us to then be go in, make recommendations that we think are going to be impactful for the person and have before and after tests so that they can see for themselves, okay, did it have the effect that was hoped for? And on the back end, you know, we can also uh, get an assessment of whether or not our recommendations are working for people as at a highest rate as we'd like and iterate and get better and better at that. So that and so well, otherwise it's all subjective. That. That's it's right. Totally subjective. It's it's subjective. And that's the other thing we're really trying to do towards the AI, which is to make more visible, more quantitative, the kinds of changes that people are seeing so that it is you know, obvious and clear where the where the impact is coming. How much uh blood or stool samples or, or whatever and data do we need to construct this digital twin? Do we need, you know, people always complain when I order labs and they say, well, they took four vials. Like, oh my God, does, is this like a massive amount of data you need or is this a fairly straightforward thing? So I'm going to treat that as a couple different questions. So first I'll answer the exact question which they're asking, which is how much blood do you need? And in the long run, I don't think it's going to be very much. Uh, without getting too specific on what we're working on, I'll just say that a lot of multi-omics technologies allow you to make thousands of measures from very small amounts of blood. And we can think about processes there that aren't based around the old standard clinical labs, because a lot of people have tried to miniaturize those. I don't need to get into that, and people know how that's failed. But we, in the science realm, we've already developed tests that work on very small amounts of blood and you can get thousands of measurements out of there. And those already work. Now the question is, is there enough information in there for you to say something really relevant to health? And we're working on, uh, without getting into the details, we're working on some very significant partnerships that will, that will accelerate that in a major way. And so we're really, really interested in driving that forward so that we can do a lot from even an at-home painless a blood draw experience that's easy for people. So that, that's where we're really going. And then the question is how much information we can get off of that so that we can construct as good a digital, a digital twin will never be perfect, but you know we're, we're really doing a lot of work right now to evaluate what are the most important kinds of information to get and then we'll be uh, deploying that to see how well you know how well we can do that and how much of a difference it'll make for people and it sounds like you can get a fair amount of information from that single blood draw you don't have to do daily blood draws or stool samples and i you know harken back to i I don't remember his first name dr snyder at stanford that Mike snyder, measured yeah. everything for a year <laughs> Oh yeah, oh, even more than that. Yeah, Mike's been a real pioneer in that space, and yeah, I faced with him a, a fair bit over the years. But, yeah, he's, he's so a single that. sample can tell you a lot. Absolutely, you can get a lot from it. Having dynamic measures is is the best. It's not hard from these technologies to make tens of thousands of measurements from a small amount of blood. So I think uh, the one last question I would ask is a mixture of several questions, which is: Should we be worried about AI? Is the data safe? Do we worry about leaks? You know, this has been around since they started doing genetic testing. I remember when the 23andMe first came out, people said, oh my God, this company's going to know all about my genetic risk for 
disease and that data is going to get out there and I won't be able to get insurance. You know, so this kind of started with that genetic variant testing. But I think the question has continued. You're putting all my health data into a computer. How safe is it? Yeah. And I, you know, that's a very fair question. At Thorne Health Tech, I'll just say, you know, we take this very seriously. Uh, we just actually went through an external review of all of our computational approaches uh, for HIPAA, for data privacy. So we had an external group. They come, they try to, you know, they intentionally try to break in to see if they can. Uh, and we just got a top rating from that group. So with no, oh, good. no problem, no red flags. So, so that, you know, we take very seriously. Uh, I would... The other thing that I will say, though, is that, you know, there is a huge benefit to choosing to share health data. And I just want to I just want to make a little bit of a, uh, a comment about that, because in other domains of our lives, we have given away an incredible amount of information, obviously, to the big tech companies, to finance companies and so forth in order to get the returns that we wanted in various different ways. Uh, and there's, of course, lots of uh, social battles going on over that right now. The impact in health data, and I had this question that uh, was asked to me quite a long time ago, maybe, geez, maybe almost 20 years ago now, 18 years ago, and I, it, but it stuck with me a long time, which someone was asking me in the very early days, well, what's the value of a genome? And it's actually very interesting because the value of a genome is very little because you don't know how to interpret it. You don't know what it means. But as the number of genomes gets larger where we have associated health information, this is true for the other omics as well, but as you have more associated health information, then every time we share that, then the, the value of every person's genome to them goes up. And so it's kind of a really interesting case because if you think of something like gold, why is gold valuable? Because it's rare. But genomes become more valuable the less rare they are. So it's kind of an incredible amount of shared information. And when I say valuable, what I mean by that is, you know, we unlock the secrets of what drives, you know, cancers in early, early life, what drives Alzheimer's disease, what drives cardiovascular disease, uh, you know, why do children die too young, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so even though you know, we have a long way down these paths, the collective benefit from doing this is huge. And so the way that I think about this, we can't do that if we don't share this kind of information. And that's just a fundamental property of the universe, right? That's just a, you know, scientifically, it's just impossible if we don't. And the other side is how do we not cause problems for people from a legal and social standpoint? And that's our own behavior on ourselves. So I don't know, this is just, you know, it's just me from the kind of perspective that I have, but I would like to believe that as a society, we can deal with something that is a fundamental truth, which is that we have to put this data together and understand how it affects health if we're going to conquer all of these issues and that we can somehow figure out, you know, how to have good legal and social structures so that we don't use this data against ourselves. And I'd like to believe we're capable of that. So you know, I'd like to believe that as well. Where I'd like to see us go. We'll see. And so I, I also vote for, you know, crowdsourcing information and putting that out. I, every now and then I get a, a letter, an email from 23andMe that says, just got a question for you. You know, do you like bitter foods? Right. Something really basic just to help them confirm a hypothesis they have. If you got this gene, 
you're more likely to enjoy bitter foods or not enjoy bitter foods. And so these seemingly innocuous kind of questions that they ask can lead to really profound discoveries about how we function as humans. Yeah. And maybe if I could just add one more thing, because there are a lot of movements out there right now. And I think that's really good for, you know, patient, you know, patients' rights, individuals' rights of often that you own your own data, that you can ask to have data removed if you're worried about it, that you always have to give consent. You know, we never take anything without consent and et cetera, et cetera. So all those things are important and in place and part of that, you know, structure that I think we can we can do to, to do this in the right way where people benefit. Well, all right, folks, that's all the time we have this week. Nathan, Dr. Price, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I've asked you this before, but just quickly, where can people go if they want to follow your work? Yeah, so um, they can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, just Nathan Price Thorne will pop that up. Uh, or I'm also on Twitter. Uh, at The handle is at ISB Nathan Price. So that was Dr. Nathan Price, the Chief Scientific Officer at Thorne Health Tech. Artificial intelligence and its role in healthcare, or maybe I should say health intelligence, because I think that's a term that we're favoring, health intelligence. <laughs> yeah, you people so, using that, yeah. Yes, we'll keep using health intelligence. As always, thank you everyone for listening, and we look forward to talking with you in the future. Thanks for listening to the Thorne Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at thornhealth. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.